right? Now it's on. Now it's on. Turn it down, turn it down, build it. Thank you. So one of the things that, so at the end of the time last, I'm just taking a survey. At the end of the time last time, just about to say until next week, and then I realized we had forgotten to say hello to the people next to us. So I said, just before you go, don't get up and run out. Talk to the people next to you and for a minute. And then by the time I left, I saw the people talking. We're talking on and on and on, which was good. So then I thought, maybe it's better to talk at the end, because then you're not rushed. But then I thought, well, some people can't stay after the end. <laughs> so maybe we should talk in the beginning, and then in the end. Why don't we, before we start to sit, take the next two minutes, honestly, I'll time it, and talk to the people next to you, and especially ask them, is this your first time here, and hello, who are you, and I'm glad to meet you, and anything else you feel like saying. Ready, set, go. Actually, it's nice to talk to people beforehand, isn't it? First of all, it brings up the energy. Second of all, it does what really the the um, the motto or the, the slogan or the truth that I hope that today's class is going to be about is that it's connecting with other people that really wakes us up and pulls us into this life. <laughs> And it's the antithesis of falling into yourself and your own self-preoccupations. I've been reading uh, this book by um, 
His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Well, it's actually conversation between His Holiness and Desmond Tutu. How many people have read this book? Isn't it really just a tremendous pickup? It was a gift to me. And uh, I'd seen it over the last, since it's out. And I thought, oh, it's going to be very... So I didn't buy it previously. Once again, my um, arrogant self-assessor, <laughs> without checking it out with other people, it's not the least bit trite or silly or banal. It's extreme, wonderful dharma. And it's so dear. Here are the two old guys sitting and talking to each other. And I'm going to read you some part from it. I'll read you that part right now. This will be the right place to start. Having made the point. Having made the point. All right, so it has to be one of these guys. I I read, and I don't like so much to mark up the books, so I put these little stickers in them. And then I can't find where I want to go with the little stickers. Okay. Okay. Um, Having made the point about the whole thing is to get pulled out of yourself and connected to other people. What a relief that is. Um, I remember years ago people say, you have to kill the ego, you have to abandon the ego, you have to overcome the ego. I don't think so. I think you have to remember that this is Sylvia in a world with all kinds of people and that they are my opportunity to really feel alive. Uh, I remember years ago uh, in a moment that I shared a train trip from uh, Washington, D.C. to uh, Penn Station on a morning when I'd been feeling a little personally, a a little sad, a little depressed. And I'd gotten into a conversation with the person next to me on the train who didn't seem at all like me. I'm old, she was young, I was tired, she was starting a work day, she was very chic and wonderfully dressed and clicking away on, you know, doing all her work for her day in New York turned out that we started to talk to each other and the bottom line, everybody's got the same stuff. Everybody is worried about their children and their relationship and their job. That's the three, that's the three things. When you don't have, if, if you're not working anymore and you have sufficient funds, you don't worry about the job. But if you have a relationship, you worry about it forever or you nurture it or you pay attention to it. And if you have children, never mind those slogans for your 80th birthday or 70th birthday cards that say, at least now that you're 70, you don't have to worry about your children anymore. Forget about it. How many people, <laughs> How many people would like to contest that? <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> Now, the other one is now that you're 75, you don't have to worry about your waistline anymore. Who wants to contest that? <laughs> I'm only 63, but I can predict that. <laughs> <laughs> so, th- this book is the conversations between these two formidable spokespeople for wholesome and uh, loving and clear, wise lives. And... Um, 
it's written by, uh, it's put together by Douglas Abrams, who arranged this conversation between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, and they recorded the sessions, and he was the moderator, and he asked questions, and they answered the questions, and then he put them together, and in between what they said is some of his... um, some of his reflections, he would say, the Dalai Lama gave him a hug, or Desmond Tutu laughed, or said this or that. And then he's talking about um, Archbishop Tutu uh, was talking about. Um, oh, my mother was a twin. I said, and she was born uh, at just prematurely, at two and a half pounds. And she was in an incubator for two months without any human touch. Did it affect her? Does Archbishop Tutu asked. I think it affected her very profoundly, I said. Now they have, what do you call it, Archbishop Tutu said, a kangaroo pouch. My wife Leah and I are patrons of a children's hospital in Cape Town. And one day we were visiting there and this massive guy was carrying around the minutest baby tied to his chest so that the baby could feel his heartbeat. And they said that these babies are shown to do much better. One of the people there asked if I had a picture of my own twin daughters just after they were born prematurely when they were in the neonatal unit. One of, our, one of the twins had a prolapsed cord which was blocking her from descending through the birth canal and her heartbeat and oxygen level were plummeting. The obstetrician, as she was trying to use a vacuum extractor on our daughter's head, had told Rachel, the mother who's laboring to get this child out, who's also a physician, had told Rachel that she had one more push to get the baby out or they would have to do an emergency cesarean. Eliana was already in the birth canal, so a cesarean was no guarantee of a safe delivery. As a doctor, Rachel knew, as I did, that every second counted, as Eliana's oxygen level was getting dangerously low. I've never witnessed anything like the strength Rachel had exhibited as she threw herself headlong into the pain and wrenched every ounce of maternal will from her body to push our daughter out. Eliana was born blue, unresponsive, and not breathing. Her APCAR score was 1 out of 10, which meant she was barely alive. She was rushed to the crash cart where the doctors tried to revive her and told Rachel to speak to her baby, the voice of the mother having an almost magical healing effect, even in the high-risk operating room. We waited for the longest moments of our lives as the doctors tried to bring her around, preparing to intubate her. Then, in a moment of unspeakable joy and relief, Eliana sputtered, took her first breath, and began to cry with life. The rest of us, including the obstetrician, were weeping tears of joy. After Eliana's traumatic birth, the twins were taken to the neonatal intensive care unit at the hospital. When I walked in shortly after, they were lying side by side, holding hands. Doesn't that... How many people had tears in their eyes? That happens when we hear a thing like that. And we get it. That's true, doesn't it? When you come to stay with somebody that you love who's passing out of this life, you hold their hand, don't you? 
they don't have to say necessarily hold my hand. They, re- they reach out and they hold your hand. I remember saying to my father, if you can feel me holding your hand, just squeeze it. And was uh, heartened to feel connected when he could squeeze back. When he didn't answer that anymore by squeezing back, I said it to him in Yiddish, which was his language before he came to the United States and learned to speak English, when he was nine years old. And when he was no longer answering at the very end, he answered when I said it in Yiddish. Because you talk to what's behind all of this year, life's memories. And these little girls are holding hands. The whole point of this book, really, is about connection and recognizing that that's really the only way we do that. It's really the only way we're alive. I'll read you some more from this, but it's really the only way that we're alive. One of the worries that I have, or concerns for human beings, is I am fascinated and very happy about the fact that if someone figured out the message to give to the whole world that would cause everybody to say, okay, I'm stopping all aggression, we're destroying all armaments, we're just going to be friends with everybody, forget it about whose God is better than whose other God and whose mountain belongs to who and whose gold mine has this or that. We're just going to get along with each other. That we have uh, electronics that could send that message out to two and a half billion people at the same moment on Facebook. We could just do it. Suppose His Holiness and the Dalai Lama and, uh, I don't know, somebody else who's a, a Muslim of generally respected renown, all would say at the same time, listen, let's do it. We could tell that to two and a half billion people, and that's amazing. And we can find people lost in forests because we have the electronics. And we can also get so lost in the electronics that we forget how to relate to people. And so one of the things that people are discovering is that incoming freshmen at university who take an empathy test are doing lower every time they do these tests, every couple of years. Generally, they score lower on how does the other person feel or their level of empathy. And they are hypothesizing that we're not talking to real people anymore. We're talking to... We're, we're sending messages like it's, it's a, not, a, not real. That it's different when you're with somebody... I don't even, I I think it's actually, that doesn't count. I think it's fine for people to, uh, I think it's wonderful for people who live at a distance from their grandchildren to be able to FaceTime them because it's actually FaceTime and you actually are talking to them. But not actually, anyway, that's too long of a polemic. We don't know who is here for the first time yet. Who is here who has never been here before? Hello. What's your name? Linda. Where do you live, Linda? I live in Nevada. I've seen, I saw you years ago, and I'm happy to be back. 
Oh, good, you come the back way? It's beautiful. Got all the baby cows lying around out there, yeah. Got baby cows lying around this way, too. It's a very good time. What else? So, you have Linda. Who else? Yeah. Oh, wow. Who are you? Uh, where do you live in Russia? Ah, I was there for the first time uh, last year. It's an amazing big city. How long will you stay? I hope so. What's your name? Do you have the same accent? <laughs> Do you speak Uzbek or, or Russian? Who else? Yeah. I'm Roberta. I'm from Chicago. But I'm in Palo Alto for two months. Um, my husband's in medical. My kid's in school there. He's a sophomore. He needs me. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're here. You have a lot of traffic coming up from there. It was a beautiful night. Okay. Good, good. Who else? Yes. I, My name is Christiana, and I live in Lucasville. Oh, okay. So you also come back, yeah. Who else? My name is Dexter, and I just live over in Fairfax. Oh, wow. So you have an easier commute. Good. I'm glad you're here. Who's here that hasn't? Yeah. Welcome. Somebody said I came. Uh, we, I came with uh, a carpool of friends who are in this class this morning, and one of my people that I came with said, "You know, just when I drive on the property, I feel better. I didn't even come here. I'm not even sitting yet, and I feel better. I see a number of people. Is it true? You know, it's a magic thing. It's like we've got a machine there that's puffing out." <laughs> Vibes. <laughs> you know, I think it's maybe because we've turned off our phones and we know the phone's not going to ring for the next two hours or no one's going to... Whatever thought I might have, uh, like, oh, I forgot to put the wash in the dryer. You can't put the wash in the dryer because you're already here. There's a way of saying I've... <laughs> no, it's really true. I, it was a very big moment of awareness for me. I was sitting not so long ago, having a very quiet breakfast by myself, enjoying it. I wasn't rushed. I didn't have to go anyplace. Uh, and I'm thinking one thing or another, but it's quiet. And I'm just having my breakfast and enjoying it. And suddenly, I'm just looking. Here's my breakfast. 
And I have the thought, oh, whatever, different thoughts going through my mind. And I have the thought, I have to call Jack. And then the, the phone is just beyond the breakfast on the table. The thought, I have to call Jack. And my hand reaches out for the phone. And I said, wait a minute. I need to call Jack, but I don't have to call him this second. You know, and I realized that I, I, when I'm not here, I work so much on automatic pilot. There's a phone, if I have to call someone, so you do it. And that really beginning to think about every time I say, I have to. I think, do I really have to? Or do I need to do that? Or even more, oh, is, is this an important phone call to make? Do I need to do it? If I need to do it, I can do it later. But how much imperative in there? I'm particularly putting in that word because I want to talk later on about the word imperative. And I think that one of the things that makes the mind feel relaxed is the lack of imperative. And I'd like to make a connection between that and the second noble truth, which is for the people who are brand new to Buddhism or Buddha Dharma, Buddha said there are four things that are true. Life is challenging for everyone. What makes it more challenging and difficult and sometimes painful is the sense that things have to be different, have to be different from how they are right now. The imperative. If this present is not out of office right away, I won't, I won't be able to rest. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm, I'm apologizing. <laughs> No, I am not sorry, but I am apologizing for making a political remark, which I shouldn't make. Uh, it's against the law to make a political remark. and um, I think it is, anyway. <laughs> I'm not totally sure. Bhikkhu Bodhi and several other important, important religious spokespeople have said now is the time for religious spokespeople to begin to say, this would be the moral thing to do, that religion is about morality. And you can't have a a religion without morality. They're about morality. And you can't have morality without it being involved. Anyway, to be able to say, I'm discontent with this and that and the other, but I'm working to change things. But in the meanwhile, my mind is at ease because I'm working to change things, not because I'm doing nothing. I'm doing the best I can, and I'd rather things were otherwise, but they don't need to be. Imperative is the key word. And I often get tricked into thinking it's an imperative. I trick myself into thinking it's an imperative. And really, the third noble truth that the Buddha taught, which is the proof or the antidote to that, is that it's possible in life to have a mind that's peaceful, even that you really don't like what's going on. Say, I really don't like what's going on. And in order to respond and stay alive and stay cheerful, this is very much the effect of reading this joy book, I have to keep my mind balanced so I can see it's not the only thing that's going on. It's going on, and still, when I... I, I was here yesterday morning, I realized it again. I was te- here teaching yesterday morning. And uh, as I drove up, it wasn't just driving into Spirit Rock, but driving just past, or walking just past here. And one of the turkey was, was standing in front of the window with his whole tail fanned out, pecking at the glass, you know. And you look at it, and they peck, they peck, they've been pecking since this is here. 
they don't learn that this is a window and I can't, they pick anyway. And they can't even walk around so well because their tail, when it's fanned out, they're not balanced well. They waddle in a funny way. You think, what was God thinking? This is not a, you know, that, but there's something so uplifting about turkeys because they endure and they you know, except for that people eat them, but that peace is possible. There's a, there's a moment in between the awareness of difficulty and uh, the rest of life. We can say that's life. There are turkeys and there are really terrible things and sad things and, and um, disasters going on and some serious things to be worried about in the world. And there are turkeys and there's the marvel of being born and the marvel of dying. You hear that story about those two babies being born and everybody in the room starting to cry. We are so happy for a new birth that comes successfully and you get to start again. When we, when we, before we had this room, we had um, a meditation hall on the other side of that meadow. How many people sat in that meditation hall? How many people didn't sit there? so that you missed that the ceiling was falling in and that there were uh, all species of animals living under the floor and you could hear them scratching at the floor trying to either build nests or get through or something. But one, one feature that it really had is that the back of it, where, say, the speaker would be sitting, had all windows around it. Uh, it, which it doesn't have. So myself or other people be sitting there teaching, especially in the spring, and it really, the woods came right up to it, and it was all windows. And uh, mother deer would walk by. How many people were there when a mother deer walked by with babies behind? And we could be talking about the worst calamities in the world, and a mother deer with two babies goes by, and everybody stops. Even I tell you about it, doesn't it look? There are also mother deers with babies. So it's possible to have a mind that's at ease in the middle of awareness of difficulties. And the fourth of those noble truths, just to end it, because we'll talk more about the path of practice today, is that we could develop minds that kept an awareness of, I better put... This is what this book is teaching me. Keep an awareness of what you need in there to keep the mind buoyant enough to remember that that's a possibility. Even when your mind is not buoyant, but to remember that that peace of mind is a possibility. To be able to say to oneself, I'm really in tremendous despair. I have to remember things pass, everything passes. It is possible for the mind to be buoyant. I don't have it buoyant now. May it soon be buoyant. What can I look around at? Where's a turkey? You know? <laughs> Where is something? Where's a person with triplets in a stroller? You know, something that's amazing, a miracle that you look at and you say, Whoa, who could see that? Don't, aren't you amazed? You ever see those triplet strollers? That's amazing. You know about it, but you see it. It's amazing.
Okay, here's one more piece of that, and then we have to see who else is here. I talked to somebody early on the phone this morning who I talk with from time to time, and he's a friend of mine uh, who... uh, who I talk with from time to time, who uh, was saying, uh, I guess I must have said, how are you? He said, I I got up this morning, great. He said, it's a marvelous thing to have a thumb. So I said, wait, I have to put this in a context for you. Some of you may remember that I have a friend uh, who was on retreat at Spirit Rock, oh, oh, uh, in back in January, I guess he was on retreat at Spirit Rock, and he had an he had had surgery on his thumb for a uh, a tumor growing under his nail and up, and it had become infected afterwards, and he had to leave the retreat, and he had to fly to where he had had the surgery done so the surgeon could fix it. But they fixed it, and he flew, and all the plane collect- connections worked, and he got there on time. And they rushed him in, and they did the surgery, and they repaired it. And his nail is apparently fully functional, and it's even starting to have a fingernail in it. And um, we were talking about uh, uh, starting the day with the practice of getting up and doing something that's an expression of gratitude. Like, I'm really glad to have a thumb. That's, uh, it's really great that he said to have a thumb. I said, I, you know, I bet you're the only person in the world that got up this morning and said, among their morning blessings, it's really terrific to have a thumb. How many people here got up this morning and said that? So you have to think, first of all, he had a thumb infection. I, by the way, I asked him, can I tell about it? He said, sure. He had a very bad thumb infection. It could have been a lot worse. Second of all, he's a hand surgeon. So it's a really bad thing to have a, an incapacitated thumb. And now he doesn't, but he could have lost his thumb, lost his whole livelihood. So, but I, I, and he said, you know, isn't that Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, meditation where, he said, where people ask him, they say, what if you don't have anything to feel grateful for? He said, sometimes I'm walking along and my mind is pretty dull. I'm not thinking about anything. And I think to myself, no toothache. That isn't even when I had a toothache, but we don't usually get up and say, wow, I have a thumb, it works. What's more, I don't have a toothache. What's more, I stood up on my own feet and got out of bed, you know, and all of my stuff worked, you know. I walked around, I did things, I locomoted, I ate. It's an amazing thing. Someday it won't happen anymore. But at the very least, if we get up in the morning, we can say, whoa, I'm grateful for that, you know. And the point is not to have an idle game, game to say, well, can I be grateful in spite of everything? But to be grateful in order to have a buoyant enough mind, in order to be able to hear the bombardment of seriously disturbing news and be able to balance it a little bit. That's not all that's happening. So who else is here for the first time? What's your name? <laughs> Two, thumbs up. <laughs> Two thumbs up. Anybody else has not said their name or been here before? Or? Oh. Hi, I'm here. I'm from San Rafael. Well, I'm glad you're here. Everybody? So 
So let's do an experiment. Let's sit for 20, 25 minutes. Sit, and uh, I'll give you two instructions. The overall instruction, really the one I like the best, which is really my own instruction for myself, is sit in a way that's easy, dignified, which means alert. One that you can sit in uh, relaxedly. Feel yourself sitting, feel your bottom on the chair. Feel your back against the chair if you're sitting on a chair. Or your feet or your knees or your thighs if you're sitting on the floor, wherever you are. When I sit, I like to sit quietly for a minute or two and just hear every sound in the room. Sometimes it's so quiet, but that's better because listening very intently to silence wakes up the whole body. And then we'll just sit. You'll hear all the sounds in the room. Different physical awarenesses. Parts of your body may feel warm or cold. Cooler. As the breath goes in and out, your body moves to accommodate the breath. So it makes space for it, and then it actually pushes it out. Makes space for it and pushes it out. My friend Ajahn Amaro likes to say, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. And then just keep it that way. Only notice what disturbs the peace and ease. When you notice something that's disturbing, usually noticing it just with a gentle awareness. Ah, my neck is a little stiff, or oh, it's a little warm in here, or whatever it is. It's then usually just what it is and stops being annoying.
So really we'll sit with quiet, letting the mind and body be just the way it is and noticing what's happening. If you want to add an extra um, experiment, you could from time to time think of something for which you're grateful, that you're really grateful for have a thumb that works or whatever in your life comes up as gratitude for and see how it feels in your body and in your mind when you remember it or think it. But only if it arises naturally. Otherwise, just sit and see what arises.
the end of the time that we sit, I invite people to mention the names of people that they're thinking about for an extraordinarily welcome event or a really difficult or in any way difficult event just because you're thinking about it and because one of the functions of community is to validate for each other that we're all thinking with concern about the people who are dear to us. I'm thinking of my friend Rachel, who's um, in the period of her life uh, following the diagnosis of glioblastoma and uh, is feeling okay this week and is the speaker at the graduation of um, Jewish Theological Seminary this weekend. And she says that she's glad to be able to go. And uh, she is herself a rabbi, and she's telling these graduating rabbis the importance of bringing social activism out into the world, not just talking about it as a hope, but joining with other social activists to speak as clergy on behalf of really making a material difference in the world. And I hope that this period of time, for the rest of her life, she can use in a way that continues to be this meaningful to her. Who are you thinking about?
this morning. A year ago, uh, next week, I had a cerebral hemorrhage. friend I had and recently found out that he committed suicide and I'm thinking of his I'm thinking about all of us, myself, and I hope all of you, even at, or as the people who have been here for 20 years and the people who are joining us today, I have gratitude for the fact that we're lucky enough to have ongoing Wednesdays for decades to come together and say with each other, this is what I'm worried about. And, this is what I'm grieving about and this is what I'm rejoicing about. That we have the uh, benefit of community. And uh, uh, the lesson that I have enduringly from being part of this kind of community that includes this kind of sharing is that this is what life is about and this is what it means when it says life is challenging doesn't mean it's terrible. It means it's life. It has a beginning and it has an end and it has all these parts. And some of them ones we desire and some of them ones we wish we weren't having. But they come with the equipment. I once knew somebody who was, I thought, a little bit flip about it. 
but he used to say if you wanted a life with none of this stuff you came to the wrong planet (laughs) this is how it is this is life and we're all doing it together which makes it easier than doing it alone May we continue to do it together and individually as our paths. We meet from time to time and even if we don't meet again, we are all walking each other home. That's a line from Kate Munger, by the way. Someone was playing... Joe was playing it in the car this morning. Kate comes from time to time and sings either by herself or with one of her friends in the Threshold Choir, and we sing along with her. And the the, the song that um, Joe was playing in, in her car on the tape was We Are All Walking Each Other Home. I like to think of us as doing that. Ramdas said that, and Kate and Kate Munger sings it. Well, good for him, <laughs> and for us. It's a lovely thing for him to have said, it's one of my huh? We're all walking each other home. My own experience is that the older I get, the more people I've already walked home. (laughs) But then on the other hand, the more people who I'm accumulating will walk me home, so... Um. I wanted to talk about... um, in the time we have, I wanted to talk about the importance of. Um, I want to set the sentence again, so erase that sentence. Over the years of my learning Dharma and hearing Dharma, my understanding of it has only, I think, deepened and appreciated and changed in a particular way. I began to be a student of uh, Dharma in the 1970s when people were uh, going to meditation retreats in order to have unusual, um, amazing experiences and come out enlightened, whatever that was, and knowing something new as a result of the extraordinary experiences. And... uh, it was fine and wonderful. We did that. And when we were young, it was very exciting. How many... I, I wasn't so all young. I was 40 when I started, so that's not so all young. As a matter of fact, I felt old at the time because everybody else was 20 and just and, and just going to India or coming from India or dropping out to go to India or having a teacher that had just come from there or... It was the decade after people were doing psychedelics a lot in order to explore the far reaches of their mind. And then Ram Dass also 
said you can only be high so long and you have to come down and then you have to do something else. And the understood and the understanding we had, which I think I don't actually have these days, is that the point was to be high. And so if you couldn't take the drugs forever, um, then maybe you had to find another way to become high. And I think that my mind incorrectly put together, you know, life is what it is, and I will be so enthralled and thrilled and living in a state of bliss that it'll be all right with me if terrible things happen to me. Um, and then over the years, it just occurred to me this very minute that at one point, even I could tell you, I started in the 1970s, and I wrote It's Easier Than You Think in the 1990s. And I remember writing about it's not about being um, thrilled with bliss all the time uh, and, uh, and, and, and therefore not feeling the pain of the world or the difficulties of life. It's about managing gracefully. I wrote that some now about ten years later, I decided that that didn't I didn't say it all together all of it that it was more than managing gracefully. it was being able to celebrate, seeing what's going on, managing it gracefully, and being able to celebrate that that was it and i would and maybe the whole thing maybe if i come around to the whole and i'm not finished yet but you know maybe at some point i'll say the whole thing is about being kind and to develop is the whole thing really is the transformation of the heart from its impulsive responses i don't like that i don't want that take that away whatever to uh, a compassionate response wow this is happening what should i do for myself and for other people. Maybe the whole thing, the whole arc of that practice. Don't you think? To be a little kinder to ourselves. I did at the time remember reading all kinds of things that should have given me that hint. I started that kind of search at the time that Aldous Huxley was dying. And uh, this timely moment was a book that Laura Huxley, his then wife, wrote after he had died, about the period of his death, which he was doing a lot of experiments with psychedelics and recording, and she wrote about what his insights were during the period of his dying. And then at the very end, someone asked him, all this with all your meditation and philosophizing and uh, uh, writing and being a world intellectual philosopher, whatever, uh, what do you actually, what do you deeply know? What do you actually know? For sure. And he is said to have said, we could all be a little bit more kind. We could all be a little bit more kind. I think when I think about human beings and I see some of the terrible things that human beings are still doing, not only doing to each other, but still doing what was the movie that I just saw I just saw a documentary which I do not recommend to you somebody gave it to me Um, uh, yet another documentary about the the anti-semitism and the camps in the 1945 
if you if you, if you have a an interest in this sort of thing, the 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 documentary is called G I Jew, and uh, who is in it? Carl Reiner, I think. Carl Reiner, somebody else who I recognize. Mel Brooks is in it. They're cute, you know. They're twenty-five-year-old young guys who ran out the day after Pearl Harbor. Did you give me the, the tape? It was you, no, not you. Somebody gave me the tape, and I thought this is probably too hard to watch, but I'm watching anyway. So I watched, and it was great to see Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner when they were young. And then start to have it recapitulate, you know, their enthusiasm along with thousands of other young men and women, some women, who signed up, who uh, enlisted in the armed services. And um, and then it ends, it goes, and it's footage, it's actual footage. So it's not just telling you what happened uh, in the uh, final solution. Final Solution was the name given to the enterprise of exterminating, really, all the Jews in the world and rounding them up and taking them to places and and killing them. And I had seen those pictures in the course of my life since 1945. Since 1945, I remember seeing photos of the gaunt prisoners I remember knowing a woman who was still living in her mid-90s. I knew her when I lived up in uh, Sonoma County. She met her husband on uh, the day in 1945 when Auschwitz was liberated. He was one of the American soldiers opening the gates at Auschwitz. And she was one of the people who had been uh, rounded up and was at Auschwitz. And uh, she was 19 or 20 years old. And she was there with her sister. She said, I was so sick. I'd had typhus. I weighed 85 pounds. I was horrible looking. And he met her on the day they liberated Auschwitz. And he fell in love with her. And he brought her back. And they they married and they came back. They had five children. They're both in their 90s. Their children are all grown. They had a life. I was most amazed by her spirit all of her life that she was there, she lived there, she saw that happen, and she went out in the world, and somehow, I think she must have had incredible inner buoyancy or some kind of great genes, because I've known so many other people who have never been able to quite come out from that. I remember thinking about it. I knew two of those women in the same congregation, actually. I used to feel so badly for the other one, because she's a perfectly nice, and she also got saved and rescued and had a family and brought them up, but so terribly wounded in her spirit. I don't know what makes that, some people. So many of the people who have been uh, Americans fighting in wars in the Middle East in the last 20 years, the number of suicides every day of ex-service people because they can't live with those memories. And I think to myself, the world has come from really, I mean, we, we're not that many. Well, we are quite a, lot, a number of millennia, but not enough millennia for us to develop a good enough self-control system 
for more people to be in more control. As I really do think about, it'd be wonderful if somebody figured out something to say to two and a half billion people at one time. Like, stop. Stop doing whatever you're doing. Think it over. And invite your neighbor to dinner, wherever you are. Just have dinner with your neighbor, that's all. You don't have to discuss philosophy. I don't discuss philosophy with my cousins who vote differently from me. But they come for Thanksgiving and Passover. We eat together. We enjoy our children together. We don't have to discuss and get on each other's nerves. We can just love each other. I think we could... We have to do that soon if the world's going to succeed as a planet. So I really want to talk about we could all be a little bit kinder. And that really the point of spiritual practice is to overcome the confusing the confusing impulses of the heart and replace them with discernment. Is this worth, worth more than life or not? So it's nice to get up in the morning to say, I'm up, I'm still living, I'm here. My hemorrhage is all gone. My thumbs are still here. I can get on a plane. So when in this book of joy where these two old men are talking to each other, they said that they posit at one point there's four different emotions that are naturally arising in people. And the four that they say are uh, fear, Can you show me in your body how it feels fear? If you're frightened, what does your body do? Do a gesture. There you go. Everybody. Yeah. Do um, frustrated. (laughs) More or less everybody did the same thing. Do angry. (laughs) Do joy. So that what was most clear is that joy is the opposite of all of the other ones. Here we are in those other ones. And joy, you let everybody else in. So these, these two philosophers here are positing that those are the naturally occurring things that happen in human beings. And they talk a lot about cultivating joy and they talk a lot. So I really recommend the book to you about including in your practice on behalf of keeping your spirit buoyant enough to keep it clear enough to keep it from being totally demoralized to have something that balances your mind with a joy quotient in every day I remember so many times when I was on retreat one place or another uh, where sometimes when I on your retreat particularly uh, as you're practicing day after day, week after week, some part of your past maybe comes up that was difficult. Or your, your present, that's difficult. And the mind starts to chew on it for a while and chew on it for a while. Anybody ever had that experience? <laughs> and it makes itself more aggravated and more aggravated and chew on it some more. Till finally the bell rings and you think, oh, thank goodness, now I'll go to bed. I've walked out of that... Uh, meditation hall at the top of the hill this one in halls all over the world in that kind of a disheveled shape at night and looked up at the night sky on a clear night and it's got billions of stars in it and maybe a three day old moon 
which I particularly like better than all the moons. That's my best moon. And it's the new moon, not the old moon. Anyway, you come out and you look at that, you say, wow, and it just fixes you up your spirit. You don't even have to think about, hey, the moon's in its right place. It just, there's something about it that's beautiful. There's something about it when you pass somebody with triplets in a stroller. Or when you go by, used to, you don't do this anymore. used to be that when babies were born, they were in a nursery, baby nursery, and now they're mostly with their moms in the same room with them. So you don't see so much. You go by 30 babies, all different colors and shapes. And But I find that I always have with me, more or less always, I'm carrying... There they are. I'm carrying... Some piece of newspaper, the New York Times on Sunday, is enough literature for the whole week. You just keep it the whole week. and I get it every day, but I keep it the whole And one of the things is it's a source of a lot of information, which I later want to think about and reflect about, and a lot of news, a lot of new things to learn about. But there's also lots of things that lift up your spirits, and you don't know what they're going to be. And the first time I started carrying newspapers around in conjunction with this class, like what will I talk about, is I took a Sunday New York Times with a picture uh, in the middle of the Afghanistan fighting, not 2003, 2004, whenever it was. And it was a picture of, um, you may have heard me talk about it, I carried it for the longest time, a picture of a Marine medic sitting down like this, on the top of a hill, where there was, there are actually, there's a war going on, and people are shooting each other, and people are coming over the hill with with guns drawn, shooting other people, presumably. And here's this marine medic sitting on the floor, and he's holding in his arms a small child. And it says in the in the script underneath, it says, Marine Medic so-and-so, so-and-so of Texas is holding a child whose mother has just been uh, shot and killed in the crossfire. And I read that and I thought to myself, it does not matter to that child which crossfire, who shot the child, the mother. The child, the mother is the same dead, no matter this, these people shot or those people shot. The only thing is it's an orphan now and this guy has sat down and is holding her. I remember I found out he was holding him but it was wearing a pink uh, sweatshirt, this little tiny toddler. And I was thinking it was a girl. It doesn't matter what it was and it doesn't matter who shot his or her mother. But here's an orphan child and here's a Marine and it was such a moment of sit down and comfort this child. And there's something about that picture that just so struck me that I took it and I carried it for months, maybe half a year in my in my folder, wherever I was, I would take it out. And I say, what is happening in our world, you know? It was a source of despair to me, but also it was a source of solace to me that in the middle there was somebody who could sit down and do this with the child. Sometimes it's something... Some years later, I read an article in the Times that this particular marine medic took his own life. Some years later. I think, how can you not? You know? Sometimes it's a source of surprising joy 
that I just I think, wow, in the middle of this world. So I want to tell you what my joy was this last week. I read um, the wedding part of the New York Times. Who reads the Who Married Who? So what do you, no, who does it? How many people? I, I read it, and you can look at all the pictures so you know something. Why do you read it? The story of life. They're joyful. They're connections. Huh? You try to guess their age. They have definitely changed since I since I was of marrying age. Um, first of all, among other things, it used to be that you got in here. If your parents were, uh, if your father was the vice president of Chase Manhattan Bank or the president of AT&T or something, one of the, these people are much more um, regular people. I think you have to actually pay maybe to get in here. But I'm not sure about that or be interesting enough. But anyway, they are much more demographically egalitarian. Also, by looking at the pictures, you see how many men are marrying men and women are marrying women, which didn't happen at that time. Or if it happened, they did it, you know, it was an understanding and people didn't know about it and they didn't tell about it. And they definitely didn't write it in the New York Times. Maybe the advocate, not the New York Times. Maybe, but they are, yeah, yeah. But here it is in the New York Times. So I always read that. And that's now for five or ten years that same-sex couples are this. I delight in that. So I wanted particularly to tell you, this was a new one that I read last week. And sometimes they tell you the whole story, how they met, they went on a cross-country flight, and one missed a plane, so the other one, so he was late getting on, and he took the only empty seat, and he lamented that it was a middle seat because he doesn't like the middle seat, but he was, he wanted to get on the plane, so he was there. And here was this woman who he met, now he's marrying. That's the kind of thing that lifts up your spirit, you know, doesn't it? Because it's a, it's a miracle. It didn't have to happen, but it did. So here... Judith Graves married Mary Ellen Madden. And it says, Ms. Graves retired as a systems analyst. So you see they're a little older. Actually, Ms. Graves is 72 years old. And she retired as a senior systems analyst at da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And she previously worked as an economist for the World Bank. And she graduated from here and here and here. And... Then it says, Ms. Madden, 70 years old, graduated from the University of Denver and received a law degree with honors from Duke University when she was then Paul Madden. That's the first instance that I have seen of that. And I got so happy about it. First of all, it's the first instance of uh, a transgendered person marrying, um, and they're two old ladies. They're 70 and 72. I mean, good for them. That's a terrific thing. There's a picture, which they also put in the New York Times. And I, I was got so happy from that, I decided carrying this around for a while. That the idea, of, this is all from reading the Dalai Lama, say, find something 
that you can think about that lifts up your spirit that you can carry around. That's why we carry lockets with our grandchildren's pictures in them or other things. What do you carry around with you? I have a photo of my son, of my eldest son, uh, in one of those things in a baby nursery that I took through the window of that baby nursery looking in on him 61 years ago. And it's been in my purse for 61 years. I've changed wallets over six, for the 61 years, but I always put that in. I have other children, but I have only have that one because I put it in. It's about how can I suddenly say, whoa, and lift the mind out over the fog so it can see what else is true. There's a three-day moon, the stars are still in the right place. Old women are marrying each other publicly in the New York Times and talking about it. That's a big thing, you know. That the, the, There's been a number of books recently, I, haven't, I should look for them, where the, the, the thesis of the book, maybe you know them, is things are getting better. Rings are getting really better. Oh, that was another reason why I thought of that one. That it looks like the world is falling apart. It is heating up, and it is against some really. James Fallow. That is great. That's very, very, very good. That's very, very good. Okay. That's very good. The current editor of The Atlantic is David Frum. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to read that. We should all read it. It'll pick us up. What I want to do with us today, in addition, or also... Let's do it, because otherwise we'll run out of time, and I don't want to spend too much time telling you why we're going to do it. We're just going to do it. How about if I... His, Nancy's going to be... Oh, there you go. I'll take this side, You take that side. Okay. I have more. These are, this is a list of the paramis. Paramis are... Parami is the uh, poly term for something that has filled itself up or completed itself... So you say, I'm working on the parami of generosity. Um, it's a virtue. I mean, how good is my generosity? I'd like to have perfect equanimity, but I have a little bit, but not perfect. Or I'd like to have um, uh, tremendous patience. Oh, I have more. I have more. Tremendous patience. Um, there you go. I have... There we go. I'm I'm pretty patient. When you think about when we're patient, we are actually stifling or addressing some impulsive thing that... uh, (laughs) If you're waiting for the bell to ring... And the, the, in a meditation hall where no one is moving, and you think, if they don't move soon, I'm going to explode. If they don't ring that bell, I'm going to explode. And you think, you feel like you're going to explode. Ah. And, but you can't do anything about it. 
So you open your eyes and you think, then you think, wait a minute. I bet by the time I take ten breaths, they'll ring. And you do that, you do that. Rather than, you're not going to explode, but rather than shout or get up and stamp or do anything untoward. Somebody yesterday in a supermarket in the line where we, you line up and you're waiting to get served at that you know, already cooked counter. And I wait my turn and here comes the, 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 the worker on the other side says to me, what would you like, ma'am? And a man over here who I hadn't seen burst out and he said, I've been waiting very long and I was here before. And so the, I said, that's fine, please go ahead. And the person, the worker, said, we're terribly, I'm terribly sorry, I'll help you now, and he was all with them, and I thought, phew, you know, first of all, I was all right, I waited another two minutes, that's all, but you realize somebody sometimes can't, like, can't hold it in, they go, and I'm thinking to myself, poor guy, because the world is full of so much troubles, you don't have to, like, make a riot in the supermarket, you know, you're there buying your dinner. These are ten, ten expressions of kindness. There are different things that we develop, different aspects of our personality, of our heart. The folklore around that is before the Buddha was uh, the Buddha, in his many lifetimes that folklore has it that he had, he had to develop all of these characteristics, which I used to teach, and I used to think, well, this is a quaint story to tell, so I'll just tell it, but I'm not that much with former lifetimes as birds. It doesn't so much reconcile with the neuroscience that I know, but okay. But then I was thinking about it yesterday, and I think maybe this is a very good metaphor, because in the lifetime that we will uh, merit peace of mind and complete equanimity, we will have really perfected all of these things, or at least fixed them up a lot. And they, all of them, are uh, how I have tried to present them, is that if we were to practice any one of those characteristics, we would have greater insight into one or another of those four noble truths. That was the... I wrote this chart. I made it up. I made it up 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, And I made it up because my, I, I was writing a book about the paramis and talking about them, and my agent said, I bet you're, you're a chemist, Sylvia. You could make them into a chart, like a chemical chart. So I said, I bet I can. And it was really hard, but I think I did. So what I want to do is I want to make 10 groups of you. How many people do we have? How about if, if you make a group of three people? Put you every three people put a hand up. Let's see one, two, three. Move and make a group. So, or if you have to move, make a group. You guys need to get another person. Here's a person. Here's a person. Here's a person. Okay. Wait, wait. Anybody's got an extra person? 
Extra person. Anybody else got an extra person? Extra person. In the back row, they need an extra person. Okay. So, everybody's got their person. There he comes, your extra person. All right, where are we now? They need another person. He's coming, he's coming. Okay. Okay. In every group, one person stand up. One person, just for, just for counting groups. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. I can't believe it. That's perfect. Okay. Uh, so now remember, were you standing or not? Standing. Okay, everybody's standing, standing. Generosity, morality. When you get your charge, you sit down. Generosity, morality, uh, uh, renunciation, wisdom, uh, energy, energy, patience, honesty, truthfulness, truthfulness, yeah, uh, determination, wait a minute, one of you should have sat down, not for you. Determination, uh, loving kindness, and equanimity. We didn't do it right, but anyway. Generosity, morality, renunciation, uh, mm, wisdom, patience, honesty, Jashoda, honesty, truthfulness. We have too many of what? Do you, not have, you don't have one? Determination. So we have three of some and two of another, but it doesn't matter. Ready, set. Wait, you have to hear what you're going to do before you do it. Don't start doing it before you know what you're supposed to do. Okay. I love this chart. This is, I could say about any of these things, I'd like to have more morality. I'm going to work on the parami of morality. And then you could think about, just I want you to think about this. I am hypothesizing that morality is calming. So you might discuss, how do you think morality, being, you know, really seriously moral is calming? Just think about that. I'm putting this out as a hypothesis. You could say it's not true. It makes you nervous being moral or something. And, and then it says, how does it do that? And I would like you to consider what I have put out as a hypothesis for how it works and say, yes, yes, I've noticed that it works in my life in that way because da-da-da-da-da-da-da, when I did it, it did that. And then on top of that is supported by, and see if that's true, and see if you can, if these theses seem true to you. Do not worry about getting it right because you cannot get it wrong. It's not possible to get it wrong. But it's only possible to talk about it. I have talked about this chart dozens of times in different groups, and I always learn new things. Ready, set, go. And really, it doesn't have to be one person and another person and another person. Have a conversation.
Hello. I'd, I'd like to go to the... <laughs> This is much better than the old ones. Aren't these nice with the two uh, hooks here? That's yeah, much better. Much yeah, yeah,
Also, it might be easier with you sitting down. Okay, let's do it.
Wait, wait, wait. Stay with your group. Stay with your group. In the next minute, in the next minute, in the next minute, stay with the group, stay with the group. In the next minute, figure out who of you might like to be the spokesperson for your group and what you're going to say. You could say the most interesting thing we had or we had a good time or we were bored or so everybody told the story of their life or what was most helpful was or it caused me to remember that. Anyway, just decide who's going to talk because we have six minutes and ten groups. Who's going to be the spokesperson? Ta-da. Where's the nearest? Lynn, what's your group? Right here. What is your parami? Dale. Dale. Okay, Dale. Our parami is working? Is this, you can hear me? Hello? Yeah, oh, there it goes. Um, we, we talked about generosity, and we just shared experiences of things that made us feel generous, and... We talked a little bit about what it says here, discovering the relief of the absence of self-centered preoccupation. And, but then we talked about generosity to ourselves is important too and what's, that there might be a, a subtle difference between what seems like a negative self-centered preoccupation <coughs> being generous to yourself. It's important so you can be generous to others. Thank you very, very much. There's a other generosity group around. There you are. You want to add your insight? Well, we talked about a number of things, but one of the points that we kind of thought about was the idea that we uh, were generous with money or things versus being generous with our hearts and our time and the sort of the differences between those two things um, and we both had sort of different came at it from different sides you know one of us was harder for one of those and one of us was harder for the other is it was it interesting yes oh it's very interesting how many people were interested in what they did all right, good. Where's the morality group? Thank you very much. I almost said, where are the moral people, but I decided that wasn't good. Here we are. We're in this corner. <laughs> um, I think the most interesting thing that came up with our little group was that we, we had trouble, struggled with the actual words morality and virtue and all of the historical, like, religious baggage that was associated with those words. And so we had to kind of try to get over that kind of look in a little bit. Thank you. Where's the other morality group? How about you? We'll have to have the patience group next. <laughs> we thought when you do the right thing or the right livelihood, this involves usually helping other people and therefore it's about connection, making connection 
And we came up with just the opposite that from our from certain backgrounds, we say, do not do to another what is hateful to you. And one of the reasons it's calming, it's kind of like something I tell my son. If you're going to lie, you better have a good memory or you're going to be stressed out what you said to everybody <laughs> like in this world today. So it's very calming when you do the right thing. You're probably connecting to other people or and you're helping and you know it's the right thing so you have a sense of calm. Thank you very much. Where's a patience group? Oh, here's a patience group. Oh, there's a patience group. Never. Um, we discussed... Um, well, the patience, first of all, and the develops the habit of abiding. And um, my my take on it was Donald Trump and all of the things that come up with him that we get to the point where we go, okay, well, this is what we have now. Um, are we going to be able to change it? Not yet. And um, we need to develop calmness and tranquility to be able to make our lives tolerable and then at the end it manifests tolerance it really is it mm -hmm. works like your chart <laughs> so where's the other patients group well there you go uh, yes um I, I don't know that our group came up with a real nugget of understanding around this, but just um, personally, uh, the, the idea of patience and karma tied together. And um, it helps me to be more uh, tolerant of what is, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to being stuck in not fair, not right, should be different. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I really enjoyed this, and I enjoyed our group. Thanks. How many people enjoyed their group? That's good to know. How, we, we skipped over the renunciation group. I wonder what that means. Where are renunciation groups? Oh, here. Okay. Well, we talked about uh, renunciation and uh, shared examples of uh, how we think uh, the practice of renunciation leads to or manifests as temperance. Um, we looked at it as re renunciation means basically giving something up um, and developing the um, habit of restraining, which is suffering, to hold back, to, to, uh, to uh, renounce something and restrain from doing it. But it is supported by what we uh, discovering that uh, uh, that everything passes, whether it's good or it's bad. Everything passes. Everything is impermanent, and by restraining and giving something up, you create a. It manifests itself as temperance because you've gotten through, and um, and gotten past the second noble truth, which is suffering. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Another another renunciation group. There you are. I know some people need to leave at 12, so if you need to leave, then I'll see you whenever. But if you can stay another few minutes, then stay. But if you need, then leave. Okay, well, where are the renunciation group? And I'm talking about renunciation could be either renunciation of something good that you think you need, but you don't really, or renunciation could be renunciation of 
a desire to do something destructive that makes you feel better but is really not helpful. And uh, temperaments is sort of maintaining a very even-keeled mm-hmm. uh, equanimity. I don't know how to pronounce equanimity. Okay. <laughs> equanimity? Okay, okay. Um, and that... It said here, discovering everything passes, including uncomfortable desires. But both the comfortable desires and the uncomfortable desires are both going to pass. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so uh, that, that was sort of the gist of it. Mm-hmm. So let's see what we were up to. Truthfulness? No. Patience? No, we didn't. Wisdom. Wisdom. We don't have any. <laughs> we came to a consensus that understanding there's there's intellectual wisdom and then there's wisdom from the heart and we kind of agreed that they're both very different we also sort of came to looked at the second phrase there and inevitably challenged by desires and the the, the suffering that that desire that challenge causes and how it manifests itself and two of us are retired and one of us is moving to Barcelona so we have three different viewpoints on what we're challenged by. And all three have almost uncountable levels of desire. <laughs> um, but realizing that, that getting rid of that desire will get us to clarity with some discernment and making wise choices. Um, and being retired and moving to Barcelona, there's going to be some renunciation. You're going to give up some things as you do these. And, and from that will come clarity. Mm-hmm. And that's going to relieve some suffering. Mm-hmm. That's a definitive statement that may or may not be true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, actually, we're thinking about it. That's why we're doing this. We're thinking about, is it true? So, uh, truthfulness? Wisdom. Wisdom still, okay. So we also had wisdom... And we spent some time on the question, can you just leave out all the middle stuff and just go straight from wisdom to clarity? Um, And um, recognize that there's a large percentage of mainstream population that have decided that's the case. But that, in fact, um, it really does take time to deepen and do all the work to go from inner wisdom or inner knowing to clarity, or if it's factual wisdom to learning the facts and really sorting through them and looking at long-term vision for things. Um, But with nurturing those two middle portions, doing the work, that it's a quicker and more gracious transition from wisdom to clarity. Mm -hmm. How'd I do? Good. Uh, Patient? No, no. Uh, Energy. Energy. Here's energy. Well, we talked about the importance of striving and uh, realizing that there's no time like now and our, um, the importance of our being active in trying to, and energetic, trying to reduce suffering and um, bring um, enlightenment and, and uh, education, uh, learning, knowledge uh, to the world. Um, but we also talked about, uh, one of us mentioned uh, Thich Nhat Hanh made a, 
a, had a quote of watering the flowers, that we, he would be watering the flowers in his garden, and he wasn't consciously thinking of the poem that he was writing, but he could feel the poem growing inside of him. Mm-hmm. So that energy was also important to uh, have, to put into our own practice, so that we could be um, able to then show energy mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. We had other energies... We had other uh, truthfulness. We didn't have patience. We did patience. We, but tr- truthfulness, determination. Truthfulness. <laughs> we agreed that uh, the people in this room probably do not make a practice of using guile uh, to uh, gain advantage and are not essentially liars. So we dug a little deeper into uh, the Platonic ideal of know thyself, which we thought was where uh, problems with truthfulness uh, are born, the inability to understand where our biases and our prejudices come from. And if we can uh, truly examine our beliefs and our feelings and dig beneath the surface and try and figure out where they came from in the first place, uh, we're on the road toward uh, truthfulness and uh, the manifestation of intimacy. Ah, there we go. Anybody else have something to say about truthfulness? I would just say that um, we talked about truth and we, we, we latched on to telling the truth in ways that are helpful and yeah. that there, is, there are times you have to, when, when delivering the truth, thinking about all of the other precepts here and thinking about the other person and how they will receive it is, uh, is very important. We talked about, um, as well, the importance of helpful truth-telling and a understanding or a cognizance of the ways in which our telling our truth can be received or perceived in different ways. But related to that, we also talked about the ways in which um, different groups of people are not allowed to tell their truth in many different ways, whether because of their gender or race or whatever it may be in different contexts. And the importance of not just speaking truthfully, but also listening (laughs) and being able to actually receive truth and Mm -hmm. to be with the pain of hearing things Mm -hmm. and being with that and discomfort and Mm -hmm examining that very well and deliberately and trying to suss out what the truth is, Mm -hmm. whether or not there is pain in hearing it. Thank you. Dexter, yes. Dexter, thank you very much. Who? So there's three left, determination, loving kindness, equanimity. There you go. 
Um, so we talked about determination um, in terms of how important it is to continually be focused on the prize, so to speak, you know, to, um, to continually go back to the awareness of what causes suffering and ways that we can move away from that suffering. So kind of just within the repetition of it and the aw continued awareness of it that we keep moving toward our ultimate goal of um, freeing ourselves from suffering. <laughs> so, Thank you so very the much. The persistence in it of itself. Thank you. Anybody else wants to add to determination? Uh, I just wanted to add, we, we also were discussing uh, keeping an eye on impermanence in order to assist us with um, uh, persevering through things like, uh, well, our, our conversation rolled over to uh, political, current political climate, and we discussed how politicians tend to come and go, and they're part of the impermanence of everything else, and that... Uh, that can be helpful in practicing uh, determination. So we sort of had um, one and two-thirds groups. <laughs> so we have the benefit of a lot of good input. And I think we kind of, we're working on loving kindness from a perspective of, I think it's not easy. You know, loving kindness, you have to really work at it. It's very hard to be kind all the time, especially to yourself. And then we also thought that uh, looking out there in the world, even though you want to have loving kindness, the world can be very heavy. It can be very hard to have loving kindness. So I guess that kind of plays into the same thing. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't try and keep after it. And then we thought part of it, too, the key to loving kindness is not to project your own issues and problems on everybody else, you know, so, so to blind you to other loving kindness that might be out there that you might see. And then we also kind of ended up, also we thought that loving kindness needs to be expressed, and one of the folks in the group here likes to make people laugh just because. And so that was a way that they felt they were spreading loving kindness. And I think just in, at the end of it, too, we all felt that there's so much loving kindness in the world, if you just look for it, it can buoy you up, which is sort of what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So no matter what's going on, look around for that loving kindness and, and accept it, let mm -hmm. it happen kind of thing. So that was it. There you go. So we're going to end. There you go. Our group also um, explored loving kindness. And to kind of piggyback on that, it is out there if you look around. And one of the um, things that we definitely noticed is that in loving kindness, it takes that practice of uh, noticing, especially those people of challenge in our lives, that um, they too desire the same things that we do. That they at the base and the core, just like our own foundations of needing to be fed and needing to be loved and needing to be having a connection, that we all desire to be well. And so expressing that and knowing that we all are on the same place, as Martha said, looks at the bigger picture, looks at the breadth and the width of what we are all made up of. So somebody want to say something about equanimity? That we everybody was so good about waiting with equanimity till <laughs> till ten minutes after. So anybody want to say a word for equanimity? Didn't we have an equanimity group? 
didn't have. We talked. We're the patients group, but we did talk about equanimity as being something that we um, were able to come come to was able to come to fruition because of being patient. So here's what I promise. When am I coming back? Next week? No. Week after next? No. Two weeks not, and then? Donald, and then who? Anna. Anna Douglas. And me. All right. So I'll be here in three weeks. Here's what I, so somebody, my team has to remember. So remind me. Since we didn't actually get a lot of time for equanimity, I'm going to hypothesize here that maybe equanimity is at the end of that because it really, in some ways, is a substitute word for mindfulness and it's a substitute word for um, wisdom. And it's really a substitute word for uh, patience. Maybe it's a substitute word for everything. Then maybe it's a substitute word for liberated, that this is happening, but here I am. Um, my favorite phrase from Gil Fronsdale is to be able to meet every moment and say, hmm, this is what's happening. I wonder what's going to happen next. That's a really spacious thing to do. So what's going to happen next is that uh, we're at least not going to see each other for next week. Not sure, but I'm not back. But anyway, I'm, I certainly will be back the week after. Must have been something in the scheduling. But I'm happy to be here. And Anna is, uh, Anna is one of the people who was a founding teacher at Spirit Rock and uh, has become quite well-known at Spirit Rock on her teaching about old age and aging. And I am older than Anna. <laughs> <laughs> but Anna really likes to talk about it a lot. I like to talk about it a lot. We both do, and we're old friends. So you'll enjoy Anna, and then I'll be back the week after that. All right, thank you for having the equanimity and the patience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.